John chapter 17 this morning, many churches, uh, when they read the initial passage of Scripture, they ask that the congregation would stand. And they do that out of a heart that wants to honor the Word of God. For instance, when we go to a baseball game, they ask you to rise for the singing of the national anthem. And we do that out of respect and honor for our flag. Now, we do not practice this here at our church, but can I just say, though we do not go through the physical exercise, may we go through the spiritual exercise? Because the whole intent of that practice is that we would honor the Word of God when we read it. And this morning I mention that to you because I think that this morning's passage, uh, all passages certainly are worthy of that honor, but this morning is even more so. Many commentators and Bible students have called John chapter 17 the Holy of Holies of Scripture. One man said it's only 350 words, or it's some 650 words long. It would take you about three and a half minutes to read it audibly, but it will take us an eternity to fully comprehend it. Have you ever gone to a lake or maybe a poolside and just stuck your feet in the water and let them dangle there? You don't fully dive in, enjoy all the water has to offer. You just kind of dip your feet there. This morning, even at a very minimal level, we'll be dipping our toe into the depth that is John chapter 17. In fact, in my study and preparation, I had prepared an entire sermon, and it was not the sermon that God wanted me to preach. I deleted that sermon and worked on another sermon. So I have about two and a half sermons out of this passage, but God has tried to direct me in this area. Can I say, as we read God's Word this morning, give it honor. And pay attention to the words that our Savior says in what is known as His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We'll only read just a handful of verses. We'll begin in verse number 14. Jesus prays, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that your spirit would guide us into all truth. May you sanctify us through this truth. May you develop for us this morning the thought that you have for each and every one of us, I pray in Christ's wonderful and precious name. Amen. As complex as the chapter is, it's actually quite simple in its outlining. In verses 1 through 5, one through five Jesus prays a prayer for himself. You can even see that in verse number 1 if you just want to take a quick look at it. The Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. Jesus, Jesus prays a prayer for Himself. And may I just say here, it's not bad to pray for yourself. In fact, I think you ought to spend much time in prayer for yourself. But the heart of Jesus' prayer is that God would give him the strength and the ability to glorify the Father. 
Oh, we spend much time wasting prayers on ourselves. It's the, the things that we may consume upon our lusts. But Jesus' prayer request is, Lord, may I glorify you. And you can pray all you want to, if that's your heart's desire, that you would be able to glorify the Lord. 1 through 5 is a prayer for Himself. Verses 6 through 19 is a prayer for Jesus' disciples. And when I say disciples, I believe that is to mean the 11 men that are seated with Him at the table here in the upper room. Specifically those disciples, those, uh, I, I say 11 because it excludes that Judas Iscariot who would eventually betray the Lord. But notice in verse number 6 what the Word of God says. Jesus says, I have manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou gavest me out of the world. Specifically speaking of those 11 men who were saved and had followed Jesus closely as His disciples. So He prays for Himself. He prays for His disciples. And then this is pretty awesome. He prays for the church. Now, I believe the church is already in existence, but when I say the church in this case, I believe what he's doing is praying for the future generations of the church. Notice in verse number 20, if you will. Neither pray I for these alone, being his disciples. I'm not just praying for my disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus is praying now for their spiritual descendants, if you will. They're about to carry the gospel to the world. Many people will be saved. And Jesus is praying for those people who will be saved. Can I just say this this morning? Jesus, in this very moment, and this very verse, is praying for you. There's a song, when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. Friend, you were on His mind a long time before that. He hasn't yet endured the pains of the cross, and yet you are on His prayer list. Wow, Jesus is praying for Himself and for His disciples and for the church. But I want to draw your attention to just one thought, and then we'll uh, kind of look at the passage and see if maybe there are other things for us. Verse number 18, Jesus says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now, we start our missions conference today, but I want you to understand something. In the Bible, the word missionary is never used. You'll hear it over and over again in this missions conference. The word missionary actually comes from a Latin word which means to be sent. That Latin word evolved into a Greek word that we get our word missionary from, and it means one sent by authority. So when we understand the word missionary, it's not just somebody who's up and picked up their family to move off to a different country to enjoy the luxuries that it may have while they preach the gospel. In fact, the word's emphasis is not so much as on the person who is sent, but on the authority of the one that sends them. See, these people are being sent by God Himself and through His local church to preach the gospel. And in that sense, Jesus Himself was a missionary. He says, I have come to do the works of Him that has sent me, 
Jesus was a sent one. He came from glory's throne to Bethlehem's manger, sent that he might preach the gospel. He's the very first missionary in the Word of God. The second missionary, if you will, in the Word of God is these disciples. Because in Mark chapter 3, we find that Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel. He's now commissioned them on several occasions that they would preach the gospel to every creature. So we find he is a, uh, he is a missionary. His disciples are a missionary. And by virtue, all of us who have accepted Him as Christ, as Savior, as Lord of our lives, we are missionaries for Him. Because He has commissioned us to preach the gospel. And what I believe we find this morning in this passage, as Jesus prays for those who He is sending, we find what makes up a missionary. The the perfect makeup, the ingredients that make up a missionary. I want you to notice them with me quickly, if you will. First of all, a missionary is passionately devoted to Christ. Passionately devoted to Christ. Now this month, we are about to meet some wonderful, wonderful people. I don't think you understand that each person that stands behind this pulpit and presents their ministry is the best that their church has to offer. It's their youth leader. It's their children's church pastor. It's their staff member. It's the guy who the pastor could totally and wholly lean upon. He's the guy that he called when the buses broke down. He's the guy that he called when he needed somebody to run an errand to do something. Because these people are the most reliable and the most dependable. These are the best of the American churches has to offer. And don't come in here with the idea that we just have to watch their 10 minute promo video. Friend, these are faithful servants of the Lord. And even this morning in my Sunday school class, I was challenged by the faith of the young man who stepped out and said, Lord, I'm praying you'd send somebody to England. Lord, I'm praying you'd send somebody to England. And then the Lord said, well, why don't you go? He said, okay, Lord, I'll go. Man, we are about to see the faith of some of the greatest servants that God has to offer in this day and age. These people that we will meet are passionately devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17 and verse 17, here in our passage, I think we see this principle prayed for by Jesus. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Even in verse 19, he says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now, the term used here is sanctification. And so often when we hear that word, we think of someone who is setting their life apart to be holy. And I do think that is an aspect of sanctification. But sanctification is the act of consecrating oneself for service. For service. You see, there's two aspects of sanctification. There is that which we are set apart from and that which we are set apart to. Imagine, if you will, with me, a, court, a, a, a football coach who goes to his quarterback and says, Now, son, I want to tell you the key to success is keeping the ball from the other team. If we keep the ball from the other team, we win the game. Well, that's probably good advice. And I do think there's some maybe uh, uh, legitimacy to not losing the turnover battle in a football game. But ultimately, the key to success is not keeping the ball from the other team. The key to success is getting the ball in the end zone more than the other team. 
Now, if you have sanctification from something, but not to something, you're like the quarterback who keeps taking the snap and says, well, as long as I never throw it, the other team never gets it. I'm keeping it from them, but the key to success in the Christian life is not only keeping yourself from something, it is devoting yourself and consecrating yourself to something. I want to kind of expound on this this morning. What are we keeping ourselves from? What does sanctification have to do with what we're kept from? Well, I want you to see that this speaks of our purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and uh, through 5. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So many people are searching for the will of God. Listen to me this morning. I'm about to reveal to you the almighty, divine, supernatural, mysterious will of God for your life. Now, this isn't just for you. This is for your neighbor, for your son, for your daughter, for your wife. This is for everybody. This is God's will for you. That ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Here's the will of God for you, that you would live a life holy unto God. That you'd be separated from the things of this world and, and the evil things that this world has to offer. That you would separate from those things. That's why I believe First Corinthians puts, or Second Corinthians puts it like this. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, saith the Lord. We ought to be distinctively different. You know what I've learned in my short ministry? If you're going to make a difference, you've got to be different. The world doesn't need a bunch of lookalikes and counterfeits. The world needs the genuine, real deal that stands apart, that comes out from among them, so that they can see that Jesus actually made a difference in your life. We are set apart from some things. And in current day church culture, it has become out of vogue to preach this kind of sanctification. Somebody possessing his vessel in honor. So preachers tiptoe around the tulips and they don't mention anything about stepping outside of the world and coming apart from the world and being holy and distinct for God because He has said He is holy and so we are to be holy for He is holy. This is out of vogue. This is unpopular preaching. But when you go to the doctor, he says you have cancer. Nobody looks at him and says, Hey, hey doctor, you're just such a meanie. When you take your car to the mechanic and he says you got an oil leak, nobody says, well, that's unfair of you to deliver that bad news. Preachers of old preached harder on this particular topic than probably any other because God cannot use a people that looks just like the people that He's trying to reach. We ought to be separate from some things. We ought to be sanctified people. Oh, friends, don't get as dirty as the world, because when you're as dirty as the world, there's no difference in you than what they already have. We are set apart from something, and that is the things of the world. We are to be holy, set apart for God's use, but we are set apart to something. I don't believe in this passage when Jesus says, I have sanctified myself. I do not believe He is speaking of being set apart from evil. That flows out of Jesus' natural, holy characteristics as God Almighty. He says, I have sanctified myself for their sakes. You see, God is not holy for your sakes. God is holy because He is holy. So Jesus in this verse is not saying, I have lived a sinless life for their sakes. Oh friend, He did live a sinless life, but that flows out of His natural being. What is He speaking of? He is not speaking of set apart from something, 
but to something. Verse number 18 kind of helps us see that. He says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Verse 17 and verse 19 both speak of being sanctified. He is saying, Father, I have set myself apart to do your will. You understand what he's saying? I came to please the Father. That's what we understand that, that this verse is speaking of. And in fact, that's in fulfillment to the Old Testament that Jesus would come as the Son of God, as the God-man, not to fulfill His own will, but to fulfill the will of the one who sent Him. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Then said lo, I, Lo, I am come in the volume of the books that is written of me. That means the Old Testament. To do Thy will, O God. Jesus did those things which pleased the Father at all times. His life was devoted to doing the will of God. His life was set apart from sin, but His life was set apart to do God's will. Let me ask you some questions and you'll participate with me me if you will. Let me ask you, when was Jesus the most righteous? When was He doing God's will the most effectively? I'll give you some examples you can choose between the two. Was Jesus more righteous when He was running the money changers out of the temple with what amounted to a whip that He had made Himself? Or was He more righteous when He went into the temple to preach and to teach the gospel of the kingdom? Was Jesus more righteous when He slept in the hinder part of the ship Or was He more righteous when He stepped out on the bow of that ship and calmed the storm by saying, Peace be still? Was Jesus more righteous when He criticized the Pharisees for their false religion and their fakeness? Was He more more righteous when He criticized them or when He reached out and had supper with those who the Pharisees rejected? Hopefully by now you understand it's sort of a trick question because Jesus was righteous at all times. But the point is this, in every scenario that I laid out, as well as every situation in his entire life, he sought only to do God's will. So you know what God's will was for Jesus when he was sleeping on that boat? He was sleeping in the boat. You know what God's will was for Jesus when his disciples came and woke him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? He says, okay, boys, well, I'll take care of this little problem. He was doing God's will at every turn in his life. Jesus did not understand compartmentalizing times when he was doing God's will and distinguish that from when he was doing his own will. They were one and the same. He was always doing those things which pleased the Father. Here's what we do, though. We are task-oriented Christians. We only do the things when it is our time for ministry. For instance, we may say, well, when it's my time to sing in the choir, I will do the will of God. When it's my time to serve in Master's Club, I will be doing the will of God. But if that is the way we are to live out the will of God, tomorrow when you wake up, I want you to assign one responsibility to your right hand. All day it can only do one thing. Now you may choose to brush your teeth. I think that's a good thing. But how are you going to put on deodorant? You may uh, choose to put on your belt. Okay, well, you're going to have to get dressed with one hand. You're going to have to drive with one hand. 
You see, if you assign just one responsibility to your hand all day long, not much would be accomplished. Why? Because we are not to be task-oriented. Your hand serves the purpose of the body. Your hand does that which the will tells it to do. And at times that is to eat. And other times that is to eat more and more and more and more. But sometimes the will of the body is this or that. The point is this, you are not just designed to do one task and that be the will of God for your life. You are to be, in all points of your life, fully devoted to the will of God for your life. Consecrated, set apart from the world, but set to the will of God. Missionaries must be passionately devoted. Friends, where is our passion today? Where is our passion? I understand better than most, it is very easy to get burnt out. I understand that it's very easy to sing the same old songs that they carry no more meaning to us anymore. But friend, if that is you, why don't you come to God's Word and beg that He would fill your soul with fire and with passion and put a tear back in your eye and a song back in your heart. Man, let's get back on fire for God. Let's get some passion for Jesus Christ. A missionary is passionately devoted to the cause of Christ. I want you to see, secondly, a missionary is perpetually drawn towards his brethren. Now this seems odd, but I want to tell you, I'm not, I am not putting into Scripture what is not there. Jesus is praying that these men would have certain qualities. And I want you to see what verse number 20 says. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Listen, verse number 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me have I given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one." And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. What we find in this passage is this is a remarkable prayer. One pastor pointed this out. He said this is a prayer that transcends time and space because Jesus is praying now for those who have not yet been born. Uh, One author put it like this, those still in the womb of time. He's praying for you and for me. He's praying for those that have not yet, uh, are not yet a twinkle in their mama's eye yet. And He's praying for those and it transcends time. It transcends space because He's praying this prayer in an upper room with His disciples shortly after giving the upper room discourse in ver- chapters 13 through 16. He's taught them many great things. And now He seals that teaching with this prayer. And He's praying not only for His disciples, but for every Christian that will ever live on the face of the earth and this prayer travels from Jerusalem to the depths of the jungles in Africa all the way to the coasts of California from sea to shining sea this prayer transcends time and space but the prayer request is not quite as remarkable as the prayer so the prayer in this case is profound but the the prayer request is actually quite simple, and it is this. That they be one. That they be one. 
You know, God's will for you and for me as the body of Christ is that we would be completely and in every way unified in our service to Him. Unified. Perfectly joined together. You say, Brother Andrew, uh, I can be a missionary without having to love my brother. No, in fact, Jesus says it would be by your love for your brother that people would recognize that His seal of approval would be on your life. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples indeed, if ye have love one for another. You see, in in our day and age... We find that there is a movement within Christianity, or Christendom will say, to get together. To just everybody get along so we can go along. You see this in, in things such as like ecumenical platform sharing where you'll have people of all diverse faiths up here. You'll have a Baptist preacher standing next to a Muslim You'll have a rabbi, you'll have a Catholic priest, you'll have all these people. And it's this ecumenical movement to all get together and get along. And I believe it's under the uh, guise of trying to be unified for the cause of Christ. Listen, friend, I would rather be united uh, in truth, uh, I would rather be divided in truth than united in error. I don't want to just get along with everybody because everybody is well-meaning and well-attentioned. I will not be sharing the platform with somebody that so degrades the work of Christ that they may teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. I will not, be, I will not share the platform with somebody that says, well, well, you have to be a member of a certain church or you have to receive a second baptism of the Holy Spirit in order that you might be saved. Friend, that is ruining and eroding the very foundation of the cross which Jesus Christ hung on and bled and died for you and me. It is through His work and His work alone that we can be saved. And I am all about unity and I am all about getting along, but I will get along in truth, not in error. Jesus is not praying that we would just get along with everyone. In fact, the comparison is made, Father, as I am in You and You are in Me, I pray that they would be one. Jesus and the Father were always in lockstep with one another. There was no disagreements about doctrinal issues. There was no questions about whether baptism had any merit on your salvation. No, they were unified in doctrine and truth, and therefore there was real unity. And His prayer is that His people would be unified in the very same way. See, the world... uh, Verse 21, He says, "...that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me." Verse 23, He says, "...that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me." This unity that Jesus now is praying upon His people is a supernatural, visible stamp that God is working in His people. You see, a lot of people in in, uh, different denominational circles, they want to uh, try to suggest that we need healing miracles and we need... uh, Uh, outward sign gifts to kind of prove that God is still working. 
friend, the greatest thing that Jesus ever prayed for His people was that they be unified. And I promise you, it's a grander deal that God would be able to unify such a diverse people than it is that He would be able to say to one man, hey, rise up and walk. Or that He might be able to shout inside a tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. It's no special thing if a bunch of people get up there and start saying, May hair shall hasbaz, may hair shall hasbaz, so fast that they can speak in a tongue that nobody understands, which by the way is totally unscriptural. It is no impressive feat if people in this arena today are, uh, are being able to put off these sign gifts. You know, there are some people in the hills of... Uh, of the Appalachian Mountains that still handle snakes. I watched a video the other day. The preacher got bit and they took him up to the mountain to die. So why don't we do that anymore? Because I am deathly afraid of snakes. You say, why don't we do those things? Jesus is not praying that His church would be able to do remarkable supernatural feats. No, He's saying, this is how everyone will know that they are My people. This is how everybody will know that I have been sent by you and that they have been sent by Me, is that they would be one. Our building is known for many things. You can go tell anybody what church you go to. You'll tell them, well, I go to the red brick building up on the hill. I go to the building with a big chandelier. I go to the building with the pillars. I go to the building with the prison buses. You know, that's kind of become more popular in recent years. And though our building may be known by many things, our people are to be known by one thing. That we would have love one for another. That we would be united And that we would have a a, a perpetual draw towards one another. That we might love each other and serve one another and lift each other up. That we may be one. First of all, a missionary is passionately devoted to Christ. Secondly, a missionary is perpetually drawn towards his brethren. And I want you to see thirdly and finally, a missionary is purely driven by the love of God. Look, this is... Every once in a while you pray that God would reveal something to you. I, I pray that often and sometimes I, I get that and other times I don't. Sometimes I have to read a lot of scripture, I have to read a lot of commentaries, I have to read articles and things like that for kind of illumination. But I'll tell you right now, when I prayed that God would open up this passage, He showed me something here that is profound to me if not to you. Look what He says in verse number 24. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me. For Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known Thee, but I have known Thee, and these have known that Thou hast sent me. Verse 26, And I have declared unto them Thy name, and will declare it. Listen to these words. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen to what Jesus just prayed. Father, in the very same way that you have loved me, would you love your people? As deep as your love goes for me, would you love your people in that same way? 
And listen, it makes sense that God the Father would love God the Son. Because in every area, in every way, in every situation, He always did those things which pleased God. He never sinned. He never messed up. He never had one imperfection in His entire life until He hung on the cross and all the sins of the world were thrust upon His back and He carried your sins for you so that you did not have to. And in that moment... He was doing the will of the Father. He submitted in every way, in every situation to God's will. And it's no surprise to me that the eternal Father would love the eternal Son. That is not surprising. What is surprising is Jesus is praying that in the very same way you've loved me, would you love these imperfect people too? Would you love Peter? Oh, I know in just a few hours, some maiden's going to accuse him of being one of my followers and he's going to deny me and I'm going to have to look at him and he's going to look at me. He's going to hear that rooster crow and he's going to know that I predicted this. I know in a few hours, Peter will have the greatest blunder of his entire life. But Father, would you love him as deeply as you've loved me? I know in just a few days, Thomas will miss church. And uh, there will be those that come to him and say, Hey, Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord. We've seen Him. He's alive. He's, he's, did, he's done what He said He's going to do. And Thomas is going to come just short of calling me a liar when he says, Though I be able to see the scars, though I be able to thrust my hand into the, the nail prints, I will not believe I know Thomas is going to doubt me, but would you love him as deeply as you've loved me? I know that every one of these men that I am currently seated at this table with, in one way or another, will be offended of me this very evening. And Father, would you love these imperfect people as greatly and profoundly and as wonderfully and as deeply as you have loved me? Friend, I don't understand that at all. Sometimes I have a lot of trouble loving myself. Because I know me. And I know me at my worst moments. And I know me at my greatest failures. And man, my life is wrecked with skeletons in the closet. And when I look up to God's throne, very rarely do I feel equipped and worthy to say, God, thank you for your love. But man, oh, so often I go to Him and say, Lord, I don't know why you love me. But here we find that God does not only love you, He loves you in the same way that He loves His Son. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go visit the Grand Canyon. I I read this week of a a lady who literally uh, had denied every presentation of the gospel she had ever had until she stepped foot on the ledge of the Grand Canyon and saw how deep and how wide and how beautiful and how wonderful it is. It was that moment she realized that only a Creator God could do that. She got saved as a result of seeing the Grand Canyon. I remember seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. I promise you, no greeting card, no Google image, no friend, no words that I could tell you would ever come close to describing how remarkable it is. 
It's deeper, it's wider, it's bigger, it's more colorful than you could ever imagine. And you know what the Bible says about the love of God for you? Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is this, that ye may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Listen to me, friend, as remarkable as the Grand Canyon is, if we could in one moment make God's love liquid, it would fill that booger and overflow it. If we could in one moment pull off the spiritual scales from our eyes and say, Father, would you show us just how much you love me? Jesus from heaven would say, The Father loves you every bit as much as He loves me. And friend, there is no greater motivation And there is no greater encouragement to live the Christian life than to know that you are loved in spite of you. God sees beyond the failures of your life. He sees beyond the imperfections of your heart. He sees behind all the charade of you. And He says, I have chosen to love you. The hymn writer put it like this. Could we with ink... The ocean feel, and were the skies of parchment made. If every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Friend, you are loved by God. And it's the greatest motivation of any missionary that's ever been.